The first reading is John chapter 6, verse 35 to 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you don't believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. The second reading is Romans chapter 9, verse 30, to Romans chapter 10, verse 21. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say it in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can, we, can they call on one they have not heard of? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard, believed in? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, 
Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, it was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstacle people. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Please do sit down. So if we haven't met, my name is Tom Watts and I'm the senior minister here. It's very good to welcome you. It'd be lovely to meet you if we haven't said hello before. And we are uh, in the middle of a little series in the chapters in, in um, Paul's letters to the Romans, chapters 9 to 11. So we're in chapter 10. We've had two so far. This is the third uh, sermon in that little series. Normally our practice is to work through different books of the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse at different paces, and see what God is saying to us today through his word as we look and listen carefully. So let's pray uh, for God's help as we do that now. Father, we thank you for this time now together with your word in front of us. We pray that we would listen carefully and that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word so that we might know you better and live for you today in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, um, the late... 18th century minister William Carey is credited as being the, the father of modern missions. Uh, the great movements of missionaries who've gone out into all the world to preach the gospel, seeing millions come to faith in Christ. But he wasn't particularly well received, uh, particularly to begin with. On one occasion, um, when he'd only been ordained a short while as a young man, he was appealing to fellow ministers to join him in missionary endeavours overseas. And an older minister stood up and interrupted him and said this, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Well, William Carey was not put off. Um, and uh, soon he was on uh, a boat to India with his family. Well, over the last two Sundays, we've seen in chapter 9 of, of this letter to the Romans, Paul focusing in a big way on how God is completely in charge of who comes to faith in Christ from beginning to end. He's the potter, and he gets to choose because he is God. We saw last week. And so by this point in, in these chapters, you could be forgiven for thinking, well, maybe Paul would have agreed with that older minister who criticised William Carey. You know, God's in charge. He can do whatever he likes. 
He will choose who he wants. So that leaves us with nothing to do but sit back and watch him do what he's going to do. Because, you know, what's the point of trying to do anything? Let alone trying to get someone to put their faith in Jesus. But throughout these chapters, it's as if Paul can anticipate what his readers are thinking at every turn. Because once again, he advances his arguments by addressing the the wrong thinking that might have been provoked by what he's just said. Over and over again in the Bible, what we see is that the Bible's logic is not our logic necessarily. So in our logic, we might say, well, if God is in charge of everything... Well, that means, therefore, we must have no responsibility and there's no point doing anything at all. But in the Bible's logic, actually, the the opposite is the case. God is in charge, therefore, pray and therefore, preach. By way of illustration of this, we heard Jesus himself displaying exactly the same logic in that first reading from John's Gospel, where he talks about being the bread of life. And in the middle we hear Jesus proclaiming the sovereignty of God. So Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. Can you hear what Jesus is saying there? Jesus himself, he's saying, God's in charge, and God is going to give who he chooses to Jesus. But then at the beginning, in the middle of that little short section that we heard from John chapter 6, and then at the end as well, we hear Jesus say this. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then in the middle of that reading, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And at the end, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So can you hear this? This isn't just a weird Paul thing, this this logic. This is Jesus as well. God is totally in charge, but the invitation of the gospel is always to anyone who hears, to anyone who will believe. Anyone at all, if you believe the good news about Jesus, you can be saved. So do that. The door is open when you hear the invitation to trust in Jesus. That is the logic of the relationship between chapter 9 that we've been looking at over the last two weeks, if you've been with us, and chapter 10, or, or from verse chapter 9, verse 30 onwards, that we heard read just now. We're on page 1137, by the way, if you need to find that again. It would be really helpful to have it in front of you, 1137 in the Bibles. Do you remember back at the the, the beginning of chapter 9, if you were with us, we saw Paul raise the question, why have so many Jewish people not believed in Jesus? You know, because they were the chosen people. What is going on? It's a source of great pain for him. And his answer in chapter 9 is, well, God is in charge. He's chosen some, but not all, of the descendants of Abraham. And indeed, he's chosen many who are not descendants of Abraham at all. Is that unfair? Well, no, he's God. He's the potter. He can do what he wants. But now the argument switches to the flip side of that Bible logic. Why have so many Jewish people, Paul's flesh and blood, not believed in Jesus? Well, because, he says, because they've not trusted in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. 
And that is the answer he now gives up to the end of chapter 10. From focusing on God's sovereign choice, he now focuses on human beings' response. And we might say, I don't get how this fits together, but again and again, the Bible unashamedly puts these two things together. God is totally in charge, but we need to take responsibility for our response. And the Bible says they're both true. God says they're true, and we're not God's. God's in charge. We are responsible for how we respond to him. So let's see how he argues this from chapter 9, verse 30 onwards. First of all, we can see from chapter 9, verse 30 to chapter 10, verse 4, the only way to God for all is faith in Jesus Christ. So as he switches to the human response to what God has done, he points out a great shock. So verse 30 in chapter 9, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Now this is a shock because you would think it would be those who are looking for God, those who are pursuing him who would find him. But it turns out the opposite is the case. So it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like one of those situations where you put loads of effort in an application for a job or a promotion or something. And, you know, hours of, of effort and researching the criteria and writing a personal statement and showing how you meet the criteria. And then your application is ignored and the job goes to someone who didn't even apply. What is going on? How can this be right? It doesn't seem fair. But... Well, verse 32, because they were misusing this law that they'd been given. They were treating it as if it were actually a list of criteria for a job application. A list of things they needed to do to prove that they were good enough. When all along, that was never the point of the law of Moses that they'd been given. That's what Paul is saying. The only way anyone, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether anyone can be right with God is by trusting in Jesus, putting faith in him. It's the same for all people everywhere. But because they turned the law into a way of making themselves right with God, to many of the Jewish people, Paul is saying, Jesus had become a stumbling stone, verse 32. And it's been the same ever since, you see, through 2,000 years of history. Human beings have an inbuilt tendency to want to prove we are good enough for God. This is not just a Jewish thing. That's the point. It's actually a human thing that we will use whatever means we have in front of us. For the Jewish people, it was the law. But all human beings do this. We, want, we prefer to prove ourselves to, um, to, or to try and prove ourselves by law-keeping of whatever kind than to simply trust in the saviour God has given us. In the 18th century, the Duchess of Buckingham was invited to come and hear the preacher George Whitfield give a sermon, which he tended to do to crowds outdoors, because believe it or not, it was illegal to gather indoors unless you were in a church with an authorised vicar. So the crowds that, te- that gathered tended uh, not to be the upper classes, but more of a rabble. George Whitfield actually came to the bottom of the road here at Downshire Hill to Preacher's Hill. That's why it's called Preacher's Hill. Um, but yeah, outdoors with a rabble. 
And the Duchess of Buckingham kind of knew that this is how it worked with, with George Whitfield and responded to the invitation she was given like this. She says, it is monstrous to be told you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. That is highly offensive, she said. See, she couldn't cope with the idea that putting your trust in Jesus would mean admitting, actually, we're all the same. Can you see? That is a big reason why all human beings everywhere have this inbuilt tendency to wanting to save ourselves. Because it allows us to keep some of our pride. It allows us to compare ourselves with others and say, well, I'm, you know, I may not be kind of up at the top in the top one or two percent, but at least I'm better than all those other guys down there, you know, the terrible, um, evil people. But if this righteousness, you know, if being right with God is a gift from start to finish, it can't be like that. Not something we have to earn, but receive as a gift. So it is said, you know, do you know how to catch a monkey? Okay, it's said that one way to do it is to put a sweet in a vase, in a, with a vase with a long, thin neck that the monkey can only just get their hand and their arm into. And then they put their hand in, and once their fist closes around the sweet, they can't get their hand out of the vase because the fist can't get back up, back up through the long, thin neck of the vase. And so they're stuck. And so what does the monkey do? It just stands there, <laughs> clinging onto the sweet, pins to the spot, and that's how you catch your monkey. And so what, what's going on is they're imprisoned by their unwillingness to give up what could actually be theirs if they were able to receive it as a gift, you know, by letting it be poured out of the jar, if you like, into their empty waiting hand. That would work, but no. They've got to put their hand in and seize it. And the message of Christianity then and now is the only way to God for all, whoever we are, whatever we've done, is faith in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, Jew or non-Jew, whoever we are. That is the way to God, faith in Jesus Christ. And so, chapter 10, verse 1, here's the Bible logic again. What is Paul's response to that? Pray. He's explaining why so many of his Jewish brothers and sisters have not believed, so that's because they haven't put their faith in Jesus. But that doesn't then mean, oh, well, let's just forget about them. No, it means pray for them. Because they ought to know that God's way is pointing them to Christ, he said. He is the culmination, the end, the goal of the law. You see that in verse 4? So that anyone who believes in Jesus can be saved. So when we've got friends or family or whoever who, who like Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters are not believing, well, well, maybe there's an issue of pride that stops them, not wanting to admit that they're no different from anyone else and just as much in need of forgiveness. What do we do when that happens? We pray. That's what Paul is encouraging us to do here. We pray to the God who is totally in charge. That is Paul's logic. God is totally in charge, therefore, no, you don't just sit back and do nothing. No, 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 you pray to this God who is totally in charge because he is totally in charge. Keep on praying, it is not over yet. 
But the objection that might then come is this. Well, hang on a minute. Didn't Moses himself tell the Israelites that they needed to keep the law in order to be saved? Isn't that a, a, a law? Isn't that what the law said? No, says Paul. So secondly, verses 5 to 13. The only plan of God for all is faith in Jesus Christ. The only plan of God for all is faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 5 is a kind of proof text that someone might leap on to prove that Paul is contradicting Moses. So look, Paul, you're disagreeing with Moses. The reason the Jews are rejecting faith in Jesus as the way to be saved and trying to save themselves through keeping the law is that that is what Moses told them to do, someone might say. So that is a quote someone might bring up, Paul is saying, from verse, in, 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 there in verse 5. It's a quote from the Leviticus, at chapter 18, verse 5. The person who does these things, in other words, who keep these, keeps these laws, will live by them. So someone will say that. See, Paul, it, you know, it can't be right that Jewish people are supposed to put their faith in Jesus like Gentiles. No, Jewish people need to keep the law. That's what the law is for. And so Paul responds... No, you are misunderstanding what Moses means. You're reading that verse in Leviticus out of context. Because, of course, while it may be true that the one who does the law will be saved by it, that doesn't mean that it's possible for sinners whose hearts consistently turn away from God, like all human beings everywhere do, that doesn't mean that it's possible for sinners to keep that law and live and be saved by it. It might theoretically be possible, but in practice, our sinful hearts stop us from doing that. And he then shows, Paul then shows, in verses 6 to 9, that Moses himself made this clear. If they, if they had been listening to what he said, they would have heard this. So he quotes then, these quotes in verses 6 to 9 come from Deuteronomy chapter 30, the bits in quotation marks. And, and the full quotes, if we, if we turn back, we won't do, but if we turn back to Deuteronomy 30, we would hear this. Moses saying to the people of Israel, the word I am preaching to you is not up in heaven so that you will have to say to yourself who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into, into the deep, which is Moses saying, don't take this law to mean that if you if only you try really, really hard and become really spiritually impressive law-keeping people, then you will be saved. So Moses is saying, don't take it to be that kind of law, the, the one that says you've got to go up to heaven and, and go down to the deep and do really spiritually impressive things. No, it's not that kind of law. No, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. In Deuteronomy, in the same verses, he said, this word is not too difficult and beyond your reach. So this, he's saying to the Israelites, this is not being given to you as a kind of prove yourself by keeping it kind of law. That's not what's going on here. And Paul, and this is, this is quite subtle, okay, so if we're, if we're not concentrating, we, it will be quite hard to see this. But if you look, Paul is in the bits in brackets in verses 6 to 9. You've got that in front of you. He is then putting a bit of um, interpretation on that to show that what Moses was doing was pointing forwards to the promise of Jesus to come. So that's why he suddenly then starts talking about bringing Christ down and bringing him up from the dead. Okay, so what, is he, what does he mean here? What is this saying? Well, what he's saying is, 
actually there is one person who kept the law perfectly and therefore lived by it in that verse 5, Leviticus 18 verse 5 kind of sense. Most human beings, all human beings, not done that. Even the God's people, the Jews. But there is one. There is one descendant of Abraham. And his name is Jesus. He descended to the dead and he ascended to heaven, just as David was reminding us in the children's talk. There is one who did the spiritual heroics, if you like, on our behalf. So, this, this, this quote, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that's a, that's a kind of unbelieving way of saying, well, there is no hope unless I myself can keep this law, which is impossible to keep with my sinful heart. And Moses and Paul are both saying, no, it's not that kind of law. That is not why it was given to God's people. It is here to point forward to Jesus, the perfect law keeper. But your response as an Israelite receiving the law should not be, oh, that means I, re- I need to try really hard to keep this in order to prove that I'm good enough, but to look forward to, to the one who did ascend into heaven and the one who did descend to the dead for you, Jesus or to look forward to, to what he would do and for us to look back and see that Jesus is the perfect law keeper that I need. Put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. That is what a Christian is. So again, verse 12, he says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Anyone, verse 9, look just, just before that, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is, for Jew and Gentile, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, still today, this is a challenge to hear for anyone who thinks, no, it it can't really be about this. Life is really about proving that we're good enough. This is a challenge to anybody with that mindset. And that mindset is ingrained in all of us. And the thing is, if we have that mindset, it will either make us proud like the Duchess of Buckingham and kind of say, I'm much better than those people. How dare you tell me that I just need to put my faith in Jesus like them. I'm better than them. Or if it doesn't do that, it will make us do something different. It will make us say, what's the point of this? And walk away. Because how could, you know, how could, if, if, it's, if it's about me trying to be good, I'm, I know I'm not good, and therefore this is a hopeless thing. So I'm just going to give up. Christopher Hitchens was um, one of the new atheist writers um, uh, like Richard Dawkins. Um, He died about 10 years ago. But he caricatured Christianity like this. He said, Christianity says you are born sick and commanded to be well. And he hated that. And uh, he was a determined atheist to the end of his life. But you, you, you can see why, though. You can see if, that's, if that is what Christianity is, you are born sick and commanded to be well, well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? To imagine a world where we are born in sin and then commanded to heal ourselves by keeping the law, by doing good deeds, to earn back God's forgiveness. And you see, that was the approach that many of Paul's brother and sister Jews had taken. And it's the approach that many people still take today, Jew or non-Jew. But that is not Christianity. Because genuine Christianity says, yes, we are born sick. That is the world we live in. We know it's messed up. We know human beings are deeply flawed. But there is a saviour who can make us well. And that has always been God's way. And that has always been God's plan. 
And so think about what this means. This word is near you, Paul says. This Jesus has drawn near to us. It's not up to us to go and find him. He is here already. Do you see? And so if if we are trusting in Jesus, do we enjoy and appreciate that? Or do we still try and reduce the Christian life to a list of rules? You know, to do this, go to church, keep the rules, do good deeds. You know, if we have children or if we're involved in teaching children in Sunday school or the youth groups or, or, or just in the small groups of one another, you know, is the Christian life that we hold out to one another in those contexts, is it one simply of kind of doing our duty, a kind of moralism? You know, here are the rules. Go to church, give some time and money, don't swear, don't sleep around. You know, is that the sum total of Christianity? When we pray, is it just to ask for, you know, a list, a shopping list of things? Or as we pray, do we enjoy who God is, as the Psalms encourage us to? Because he has already drawn near to us. It's not up to us to kind of go and find him and squeeze out of him what we can through our good deeds. This is about knowing Jesus who has already come to find us sinners. It's about relationship with him. And because of that, it's open to all, Jew or Gentile, whoever we are, whatever our background, whatever we've done or not done, as, as, uh, as I heard someone put it, whatever kind of suit we wear, business, boiler or birthday, whoever we are. And that leads Paul then to his final point, verses 14 to 21. And the logic goes like this, because if verse 13, if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, everyone, anyone, well, the question then is, how is God going to ensure that everyone, anyone hears about this Jesus that you can call on and be saved? And so we see, thirdly, finally, the only strategy of God for all is keeping preaching faith in Jesus Christ, verses 14 to 21. So he's got this chain of questions. So verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In other words, this message, that anyone at all can reach out and put their faith in Jesus It needs to be preached. It needs to be proclaimed so that people will hear it. And and when you hear that word preached, don't just think of it in the narrow sort of Sunday morning sense like this. It means in the broadest possible sense of sharing the message about Jesus so that people hear that all they need to do is confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. As he put it back in verse 9 as we saw. And and then and now, that that feels like a fairly weak strategy, doesn't it? You know, surely, surely, you know, God is God. He's in charge of everything. We've seen that in chapter 9. He's the boss. And yet his kind of strategy for getting it all done seems to be using weak, fallible human beings like you and me simply sharing this message that if you believe in your heart that that Jesus is Lord and, and... you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you kind of think, that's, that's, that's a really weak strategy, isn't it, Paul? Because, hang on, Paul, this strategy doesn't seem to be working very well. You know, because then and now, 
people hear that message and they go, no, I don't want that. And that, that's ridiculous. And they reject it. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll have had that experience. You know, we think, I've been really clear and I have uh, explained who Jesus is. Or, or, you know, this person I'm talking to, they've heard it from others as well. They've heard and they've, they, you know, it might, they must have, how can they not have understood? It's so obvious. But they still say, no, don't want this. It's not for me. And Paul says, yes, verse 16, that is what happened with the Israelites. And again, that was just as God knew would happen. So do you see, he's saying God hasn't been caught out. So verse, verse 16, Isaiah, I quote from Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our message? So they need to hear it. Is the problem that they haven't heard it? No, verse 18, of course they did. The message has gone out clearly. And so as chapter 10 finishes, he returns to what he said at the beginning. Those who were seeking did not find. Those who were not seeking did find. And he raises the idea that the effect of this might actually be to make the Israelites envious. And we'll come back to that in chapter 11. But the point is, this is a simple message. But it needs to be preached. And we can expect a variety of responses to that. And that's okay. That's in God's hands. Next week, we're going to welcome Stephen Pasht, who is our mission partner, working specifically to reach Jewish people in Geneva, in Switzerland. And he will be sharing what, that, what it looks like specifically as we seek to reach Jewish friends and neighbors, as Paul is encouraging us to do in this chapter, to reach all with this message but it needs to be preached the message needs to be shared and we began with the surprise that in Paul's logic God being totally in control means not that prayer is pointless but that it's vital and now as we finish we see again God's totally in control chapter 9 but that doesn't mean evangelism and mission are pointless it means again they are totally vital William Carey was right they are the means that our sovereign God uses to reach the world with the message that Jesus is Lord. It is a beautiful thing, Paul says, to be involved in that mission. How beautiful are the feet. You see, so often we're filled with fear, aren't we, when it comes to sharing our faith. You know, at, at, at the office, at, at school even, and, and, and we are on the back foot, and we fear we are imposing ourselves on others. And we think, oh, I, I, I'm going to say it wrong. And they're going to reject me. Well, Paul and, and the Bible make it clear the most beautiful thing we can do is share this message about Jesus. It's not a message of finger-wagging. It's a message of love. It's a message of grace. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message that, yes, we've all messed up. I have, you have. But it's a message that there is a saviour and all we need to do is put our trust in him. That is a beautiful message. It is a privilege, Paul is saying, to be able to share that message. But it needs to be shared. To share this good news that Jesus has died and risen from the dead. We don't have to work our way up to God. He's come down to us in Jesus. So let's pray now for God to be at work in us as we seek to share that beautiful message let's pray now
How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Father, as we see how this message of faith in Jesus is for all people, for us, for the world around us, we all come to you on the same footing as sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. We're sorry when we try and turn life into a way of proving that we're good enough because actually we're not. But we thank you that nevertheless you have sent Jesus to live the perfect life we have not lived and cannot live. Thank you that he died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven on our behalf. And as we trust in him, we have new life. And so we want to share that message with the world around us. Help us in all that we're doing as people as Christians, as uh, people in all kinds of different contexts through the week to come, to be living for you, to be sharing that good news in what we say and do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.